towards the end of five years at boarding school together, my co-founder Jan and I had a series of conversations in what came to form the start of our company, Arda. A little under a year later, we raised our very first fundraising round, taking leave from university shortly thereafter. Today, we're setting up drone delivery networks across an area of 50 health centres and over a million people as we gear up to take Arda to new heights. Today, I speak with Jan about our stories and the Arda story. It's a candid conversation and it gets to the foundations of who we are, what we're building and why we're building it. I hope it can act as a small portal into our vision. Jan. Hi, Shub. How are you? Very good. Nice to be here on the podcast it's, with you. It's been, a, it's been a long time coming. We're, um, as you can probably tell by the background, we're, we're not, in, not in Europe, not in the States at the moment. We're actually in the, in the Gambia launching a few contracts here, working closely with our partners. Jan, it must be a, a nice switch up from Poland around this time of year. Yeah, very nice, actually. Um, March is arguably the worst time to be in Poland, and that's precisely sort of at the end of March when I came over here, so it was a great contrast from uh, snowy, cold, wet, not pleasant more so it's a sunny Gambia I yeah, must yeah. say no I, I can imagine it's been a, it's been a lovely few weeks here uh, straight into the work and, and been very busy but not many better places to do it really um, but tell me a little bit more about about Poland what was it like uh, like growing up there mm-hmm. what sort of parts of Poland defined you as a person and the person you've come to be yeah, how yeah was sure that? so I guess I have to lead with where I grew up in Poland um, like most countries Poland's sort of very split in terms of which areas are developed and cities tend to be more developed especially because of the sort of socialist past that we have um, so I grew up in Warsaw which is the capital city which is arguably the most developed uh, city maybe the tri-city in the north is, is more developed um, but yeah it's really good uh, <laughs> I love Poland a lot really great place to grow up I think it gave me a lot of the benefits of uh, being in the west and being in a developed society in the sense of you know infrastructure healthcare being there democracy, those sorts of things. Um, it's very safe, which, which were all great things. Um, and also some of the, let's say, downsides of it. For example, there's not that much opportunities for young people to do, to do extracurriculars at school. It's tough to balance sport and academics if you're young. Not a lot of, let's say, I'm not gonna say there, there's no role models, but no young people who are like sort of 30s, 40s, who are doing amazing things like you maybe have in the West, because again, of that socialist past we have. But the advantage of that was that, you know, when I moved out beyond Poland, I appreciated those things a lot more. So it made me, I think, a more humble person in that sense, which right. was uh, a not very humble thing to say, but I'm sure you understand that. Yeah. I'm sure um, I'm sure Robert Lewandowski might have uh, something to say about the, the fact of, of you saying there's no, no role models around the uh, age of 30 years old. Uh, but unless you're a footballer. Few and far between. Uh, unless you're a footballer, then, then it's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I, I, I came to Warsaw a couple of times and have been sort of shuttling back and forth there as we've been, uh, as we've been working on Arda. Um, and it really struck me sort of how developed it actually was. Sort of growing, growing up in the UK, um, there were a lot of Polish immigrants who, mm-hmm. who have been coming over the past sort of 20 years, I guess, since, uh, since you guys joined the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when, when I went to Warsaw the first time, it, it sort of really struck me. I don't really know what I was quite expecting, but um, incredibly developed city, very spacious, very open, very clean. Um, a, a lovely city, really. But um, I guess, you know, the, the big elephant in the room, I guess, is Poland hasn't always been that way, um, yeah. and it's sort of had a sharp, sharp turn of development uh, at the turn of the century. 
what sort of stories have you heard from, from your parents, from your grandparents? How does that sort of still infuse the mm-hmm. culture? So um, I was born sort of right before that inflection point. I was born in 2001, for reference. Uh, towards the end of 2001, Poland joined the EU in 2004. Um, that's where sort of big development started. Um, so I got to see a lot of it. Um, I mean, for one, looking at the skyline change um, was amazing. Um, but yeah, it is a very interesting place because having lived for a bit, for a bit of years, um, well, the same place as you at Harrow in, in uh, the UK, um, I've been asked questions about Poland ranging from, you know, are there polar bears because the P-O-L in the first three letters gets them to like, you know, is there internet in schools all the way through to, you know, if, if you go talk with some people who are, say, from Ukraine, asking you like, you know, are the salaries like 10 grand a month? Right, which shows that there's a very big amount of misperception about Poland because our eastern sort of uh, neighbors perceive us as being extremely developed, and in the west, the perception is we're actually very underdeveloped. So uh, it is a cool city in terms of that, and there are a lot of fun stories. I mean, to, to give a concrete example, my grandma went to school in the winter on a sleigh that was pulled by horses. Um, and I grew up in Warsaw uh, building and flying drones in my free time, which are unmanned aircraft. And that's an industry that Poland's become known for. So I think that shows a pretty sharp contrast across, well, pretty much 60-something years. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. good example but, of that. And so as someone who's sort of come from a background in, in a country that's, that's come through that, what sort of things do you value about what Poland has become uh, and sort of the new liberations and economic freedoms and, and personal freedoms that have sort of come with that. And I don't know, how much can you appreciate what had come before that? Um, how much of that is still you know, tangible, even if it's at arm's length? I think a lot of it is very tangible in the sense that my grandma, for example, is a, not a school teacher. She was a school teacher. She's now a coach a sports coach at the University of Warsaw and from her I hear a lot of crazy stories about sort of what was happening in communist times for example her monthly salary I think was something like $30 as a university teacher back in the day and now in Poland you know in uh, Warsaw for $30 right that's a might not even get you a lunch at certain restaurants right So, so it's amazing to see that because it makes you really feel like wow this place is moving quick and quick in a way that's you know almost no other country i think had this quick of a growth period right and and has that affected um i guess the way you live your your day-to-day life uh, without being sort of too philosophical about it Mm -hmm. does that make you value certain things more than the average the average person who hasn't uh come from a background in, in a culture like that i think the valuing opportunity and openness of regulations i mean even sort of to give a silly example here, um, I you know I had to get vaccinations for travel, for example, right, or get things like you know my driver's license sorted. I can see year to year how that's getting a lot easier to do. So I really appreciate that you know things are getting clearly easier. There's more things are more digitized. You can pretty much do a lot of the sort of admin stuff online now in the country. All the way through to the fact that opportunities. There really wasn't a lot of things like accelerators, venture capital funds, tech innovation back when I was sort of 12, 13, 14 in Warsaw, um, compared with now where I'd say, yes, of course, it's not Silicon Valley, but it's definitely moving in the direction of Silicon Valley rather than than regressing. Um, So that's my my thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess one of the, well, when you look at 
uh, communism, one of the things that often lasts in places which have gone through communism is uh, is that sense of community, if nothing else, right? Um, and you know, g g coming coming to Poland and traveling around one or two other places who have had a similar pass, there's I don't know, there's something perhaps uh, nostalgic, not not necessarily in a good way, but something that still ties a certain generation together. Um, mm. And they still look back with, perhaps not a fondness, but a certain nostalgia. I think that that would be fair to say. Yes, there is definitely some level of nostalgia for like, let's say that not the good old times, that I wouldn't say that's how they categorize it because it wasn't that good to live in those times, at least right. from accounts I've heard. Um, it's fair, fair to say, I think. Yeah. Yep, but there's definitely a sort of fondness for certain aspects of it like the well in those times for example people were a lot more they worked a lot closer together right, right. so it's sort of like you have in gambia if there's you know less government less government support and the government is trying to control a lot of the things informal economy things like that yeah and my family knows telling stories of how things worked back then how everyone knew everyone how like connections were the way you know you couldn't get a doctor's appointment if you didn't weren't friends with the right people which was both good and uh, and bad but that's my thoughts there. Um, actually, segues into the question I wanted to ask you about this, um, well, I guess how your cultures defined you in a way, because you also lived in the UK for a few years like me. Um, but your background is very, well, mixed, I guess, across uh, different parts of, well, different continents even. So the question sort of I have here is, you know, uh, your family's been three generations ago, if I'm not mistaken, in India, then on the African continent, two countries, then UK, and now still in Africa, how has that very global lens, uh, how, how has it affected the way, let's say, your parents were raising you, those sorts of things? Yeah. That's pretty an interesting thing. It, it, it's, 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 it's a fascinating thing. Um, the, the group of people who my family comes from are known as, as being nomadic. Uh, mm. They always have been. Uh, my ancestors, you know, going, going all the way back, they've always sort of been nomadic and that's Sort of how we came from from India and villages in, in Gujarat to, to Kenya and then eventually to, to the UK my parents came came to the UK um, it's um it, it's it's sort of a, a fascinating story if I, if I can say so it's um even one that economists uh, the, the the great Thomas Sowell even has sort of picked up picked apart this uh, particular group of people as one that's sort of gone from place to place and face persecution in every place that they've gone to, specifically both in Kenya and in the UK, uh, and succeeded. They've uh, done really well. It's, um, and if I could just hop in, isn't the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, also from this group? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if he's from the exact same group, but yeah, his, his family also came from, from India to Kenya to the yeah, UK. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure of his exact background, but definitely a similar sort of, uh, similar sort of past. Um, but yeah, it's sort of a group of people that are doing very, very well in the UK. Um, I guess what it's told me more than anything is how important family and upbringing and culture really is. Um, I think in today's modern world where everybody's sort of connected with everyone and uh, you've got big government and you know so on and so forth, it's very easy to pull yourself away from the family, which for me is really the, the really important uh, institution, if you can call it that, in, in a person's life and, and more than anything defines who they come to be and, and who they are. Um, 
and so you know my parents is sort of very keen on in you know bestowing upon me values of, of hard work uh, respect and that's something that you know had been passed down by by their parents to them as well um but yeah but coming from sort of a nomadic people that have you know surpassed persecution everywhere they've gone really tells me the strength of of family and culture more than anything that's an interesting point i noticed that you've actually impressed me with it a few times where we were sat at an indian restaurant and you like knew some dishes name in like the, the particular language and on the surface right you appear to be indian and it doesn't raise any questions but sort of for me knowing that your affiliation with india as a country is like my one with like I don't know, Germany or maybe like Russia. Yeah, sure, I have some like great granddad who's from there, but like I have nothing to do with the culture. It's for you know, you still know some of the words, you know the food, the bit of culture, how yeah. it's done, sort of. It's very impressive if you think about the fact that the last time someone from your family would have been like sat eating a meal in India while living there would have been almost a hundred years ago. It's um, it's fascinating until you learn that um, I was. Well, Gujarati, the, the Indian dialect my, my family speaks, was actually my first and the language that I was fluent in until oh. I went to nursery. So a little bit embarrassing that it sort of uh, <laughs> slipped me by. Um, and that I've sort of resorted to, to naming food dishes, but um, still nevertheless, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, was, it was the first, first language I grew up with. Um, my parents were sort of very keen on making that the first language I grew up with because, you know, they knew once I sort of went to nursery and, and went to school, I would learn English anyway growing up in, growing up in London. Mm. Um, and you know my my parents still speak uh, Gujarati, uh, as does my grandma, and I can still understand it. Um, it. It's something I, you know, really would like to would like to to learn to speak again. Um, I've also had sort of a, a recent, I don't know, a, a recent stirring to to sort of connect with Jainism, which is uh, the religion of of my family. Um, but sort of I don't know, growing up in modern Britain, I was. Um, we weren't, you know, we were religious, but we weren't practicing very often. And I don't know for some reason, religious but not practicing. You mean you just held the beliefs, maybe? Sure. But yeah. For example, I don't know the equivalent of you didn't go to the equivalent of a church, for example. Right. Exactly. We we didn't go to temple, but we okay. were vegetarian, for example, okay. because of okay. because of the religion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure quite what it is, but I've recently felt sort of a, a conviction to to sort of reconnect with with religion. Um, I'd gone through a couple of years, a couple of years ago, of you know, you know, flirting with uh, the whole atheism thing. Never was atheist, but you know, sort of entertained the idea. But how did this is an interesting question because for me this had personally a very big influence. Harrow, the boarding school we, we would have went to, um, they well, I'm not going to say they forced us to go to church. We all signed up to go to that school. Right. <laughs> so yeah. so we, we we signed up ourselves to go to church like once or twice a week. Um, but that was once or twice a week for five years. So we spent quite a bit of time probably in the church listening to, well, a religion that neither of our families were affiliated with, which yeah. is Anglican, uh, the Anglican church. Did that in any way, did you, were you at any point considering becoming Anglican or did that steer you away from that? Because for me, it had an interesting effect where I came into Harrow, um, not going to say being very religious, but definitely believing in God and believing in the Catholic faith as being sort of the, the, the one true faith. And what actually got me to be less, let's say, well, I wouldn't say I'm totally atheist, but what got me less associated with the Catholic Church was actually just spending more time in the church <laughs> yeah, listening yeah. what they had to say. Yeah. So it's interesting, did that have any effect on you, I guess? It's very funny. Um, 
you know, I, in, a, in a strange way, you know, it, it didn't make me sort of want to become a Christian. Um, never sort of have looked at it from that angle. But, you know, what was important there was, I guess there was some sort of, there was an institution that, I guess from the school's point of view, they tried to make, form the foundations of our education, right? Um, for a community, I'd say that was the best part. It's the fact that you, you, you come together, yeah. 400 of you, you sing a song together, holding hands. Yeah. As funny as that sounds, that does build community if you force it down someone's throat a few hundred times. That's, yeah, no, that, 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 that's absolutely true. <laughs> I mean, it certainly, certainly works uh, <laughs> for, for what it was trying to achieve from the, from the community aspect. Um, I also think that sort of these, these days, people underestimate the influence of religion in years gone past, I mean, years and years gone past, on sort of the moral framework of particularly the West and particularly Christian morals on mm. the West. Um, I think that can easily be underestimated, can easily be taken for granted. Um, there's a, a writer called Tom Holland, I'm not sure if you've heard of him, who has sort of written, written extensively on that. But, um, you know, I, I, so I think from that, from that perspective, what I were trying to do is trying to sort of, you know, See where all of this comes back to, and you know? I thought, yeah, I, I at least valued that from uh, from at least an outsider's perspective. I think that the religion is definitely an important part of, well, just as in, I don't think any one religion is let's say conducive to development, but I think that there is yet to be an atheist and godless, so to speak, society or civilization that succeeds. Whether they believe in like you know some dons sat on top of Mount Olympus or right. some creatures in the sea or you know the, now sort of the Catholic or well the Abrahamic religion God God there always seems to be some religious or spiritual framework that every well noteworthy society has yeah um, it's, it's very interesting let me um let me sort a of funny call point you. if I can hop in the, yeah, the, please, the, the one that I think that most people would agree completely failed type of society communism happens to be the, also the one that's the most anti any religion well, and spirituality. Another sort of, you know, a set of interesting ideas that have been floated around uh, just, you know, this past year even. Uh, I, I wanted to come back to Harry, we'll, we'll do that in a, in a mm -hmm. minute, but um, is that religion, the absence of religion, the void it sort of left, has sort of picked itself up in, in new religions. One of those, which I'll use the example of here, being the climate religion and sort of, you know, people have their, their opinions on, on what that means, but, um, you know, people have sort of gathered around uh, this agenda um, that, you know, is, has taken over the world, really. Uh, the climate, climate change agenda, whether for good or for bad, we can you know, go into that or not, but um, that sort of really encapsulated a lot of what, you know, governments are doing, uh, as well as private, private companies. Uh, just working in Africa and sort of being in, I guess, a space that's shared with a lot of NGOs. You, you can't get away with getting get anything with funded by a public institution if you don't mention how it's sustained. That's something, yeah, that's something we've seen firsthand as well, yeah. right? Speaking yeah. to you know, different organisations. Um, everything, particularly in this part of the world, needs to have some sort of a sustainability angle. And it's always something... It's always something that, you know, just, just makes me think... In a place like this, what should come first, the, the, the public health or, or the sustainability? And, and, you know, certainly the sustainability shouldn't sacrifice the public health. So, you know, it's a, 
it's an interesting dynamic, I'll say that. I mean, definitely. And also, if you look at um, what's, let's say, one event that's caused a lot of countries that are fans of um, climate change policies like electrification, what's one event that's caused them to, let's say, do a lot of things that go against them? It's the yeah. war in Ukraine. Absolutely, yeah. In other words, they found themselves at risk, at pressure, and suddenly they became, well, let's say, I'm not going to say fans of like oil and petroleum. Well, but Germany being reopening their, their coal plantation, so if, so if the UK. It's, exactly, um, exactly. It's a uh, well. Perhaps people shouldn't have been so surprised when you base your whole energy policy off of Russia. Yeah, especially um, in a continent that has uranium, right. for example. Doesn't yeah? Uh, do, doesn't seem the soundest of decisions. Um, but let me sort of pull you yeah. back to to Harrow and sort of talking about that. What was um. What was boarding school like? Just just for a little bit of context, as you mm -hmm. probably might have guessed, Jan and I went to the same <laughs> secondary school for, for five years and and the beginnings of Arda came up towards our, the end of our time there. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just sort of full boarding from 13. Uh, can be quite daunting for some people. It's, I don't know, I think it's a, a love it or hate it kind of thing, but yes, what, what are your <laughs> thoughts uh, reflecting on that time? Mm, overall, uh, I'd say, uh, I'd put out the bold statement here, and I, I'm no way getting paid for this, but, but I think that going to Harrow was um, one of probably the best things that happened to me uh, grow, growing up, especially if I sort of bring back this um, Poland part of it. Um, as great as Poland is and as fast as it has developed, the education system is one thing that is sort of lagging behind like a horse without two feet. It's just like two hooves, whatever, but it's just um, very, well, lacking. And, the, you know, no matter if you go to a good private school or, or home school, best state school, the one thing that all of these have in common is the teachers are severely underpaid, class sizes are too big, people think that the, the approach to school is that, it's like, if I take these two glasses and I'm going to, here's the teacher, here's the student, I'm just going to pour some knowledge into their heads and then they're going to leave and they're somehow going to do something useful with that knowledge. In other words, they, they view it as a very transactional thing. It's a five-year-long wire transfer of knowledge, which is, I think, a terrible way to view it because you yeah. can do that by reading a book. Right. And clearly, well, which they do a lot of. <laughs> we, we were assigned a lot of, like, forced readings. I think when we were, like, 10 or 12, we had to read, like, a... 1200 page book about like the crusades or something sounds but like a lot of fun crusaders yeah it was, yeah. It was terrible <laughs> and the silly thing is in the age of internet i don't think anyone actually read it they all just will just watch the movies yeah. anyways um now, nowadays you can get chat gpt to <laughs> yeah, uh, and now my, my younger brother is going to get chat gpt <laughs> to give him a summary yes, exactly yeah. um but the great thing with going to a place like harrow was two things now number one it puts a lot of things in perspective um if you're in poland none of your older friends are going to be going to Stanford. Yeah. <laughs> Simple. None. Um, none of your older friends are going to be starting companies, really, or, or if they are, it's not going to be sort of at this scale as you get some people who are going to the top place like Harrow. Um, there's going to be very few people who manage to balance a not terrible academic track record with achievement in sport or music. And when you go to Harrow, you're like, okay, wow, I can actually do a few of these things at once. And that was the thing which was limiting me in Poland is I wanted to do a lot of things, but the approach of school was we should take as much of your time as possible for, for the sake of it. And, that, and no other things. Like if you want to train a sport professionally, in Poland you have this concept called a sports school. So you go to this type of high school instead of a normal school, and the focus is sport, meaning right. the focus is, of course, not... Uh, 
um, academics. not academics, you mean yeah. to give another example, we have a lot of, this is a remnant of socialism, which in a way was good for some people, but in some ways it's negative, even, you know, one of the pilots we've worked with previously, for example, in Poland for some flight testing for Arda, um, you know, they didn't go to normal high school, they went to an aviation school. So, so there's a lot of these things, and Harrow was really great because it showed me that there's a lot of different things here like that. Yeah, well, uh, I, I absolutely loved Harrow. I think, um, well, uh, amongst many things, that sense of community you spoke about, yes. incredibly yes. important. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, it's a cliche, but, you know, those are the friendships that, are, that will last a lifetime. I mean, you know, the obvious example is, is you know, look what's come out of it for us as well. But um, mm. the other thing is, uh, yeah, Harrow was very intense. Um, so in terms of how your time was structured, uh, the workload you had to manage along with sort of extracurricular, extracurricular uh, commitments, it was every day was, you know, one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, and I think that's, you know, learning how to manage your time, incredibly valuable. That's something that I, I found particularly true sort of transitioning into university as well. Um, but I think perhaps the most important thing for me at Harrow was the soft skills that it that it imparted. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you have to you have to learn how to speak to adults and, and maintain conversations with adults. And I see this sounds write a formal email. Exactly. It's a very yeah, yeah. Skill. But, but basic manners and um, you know courtesy. Uh, I don't know if that you know sounds a bit stuck up of us to say, but all things which are extremely important in my estimation. Well, what have we noticed, even when we were um, sort of, you know, to, to whip back um, to Arda here, even when we were um, trying to work with some people, the one thing that we noticed when, when working with hiring people our age and working with people our age versus a bit older, people our age often lacked a sense of cordiality. As in, it, w it was definitely not standard to, like, be polite in a text message. You can easily get hit with a, um, you know, lowercase, typo, no full stop or anything else. Yeah, and as silly as this sounds, when you're working with someone, right, yes, sure, I'm not requiring them to, like, right, dear Jan, like, I hope you had a good day for every single text message, but the least you can do is, you know, start with, like, like make a coherent sentence, right? Right. And they, with some of these people, it gets to the point where our age, again, I'm not sort of being like, oh, this younger generation, it's like people our age, yeah. that it's, it's so informal that it gets to the point where it's incoherent or, or ambiguous what they're trying to say, and Harrow really... Try sending that to a beak and they'll yeah. just... Uh, a, yeah. a, a beak. A beak, uh, yes. <laughs> that's a... Uh, you weirdo. It's, it's, it's a euphemism, sort of. But at Harrow, that's the term T terminology for, for teacher. Yeah. Terminology for teacher, right. yes. Yeah, that, that could cause some confusion. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, so... Uh, just, I mean, we'll bring up art. We haven't sort of spoken too much about art. We will, we will come on to it. But um, organisation and communication sort of two very basic things which I think at the very start not between us but sort of in our day-to-day -day management of Arda we probably took for granted um, yes and yes, yes. I think those are two things which now we take very very seriously uh, in terms of how Slash we manage other people as a great asset if someone has it yes yeah. yes as well and it's, uh, it's, it's it's almost scary how many people don't have it mm. um but yeah, it, it organization, especially organization, can make such a big difference to how you run a startup. And that doesn't mean you know, sort of tie yourself down with organization and and get pedantic about it. But you know, 
just just basic stuff, right? You know, how are you using your time most effectively? What can you foresee in the future happening? Can you plan in advance? Uh, you know, can you make adjustments now that will help you in the future? Uh, all of those things. I mean, you know, naturally as a startup, us we've wasted thousands and thousands of dollars just because of things that have gone wrong. And I don't think there was a world in which we could have stopped that. Um, but I, yeah, I, for me certainly, organization is something that has, has come on a lot for us as part of Oada over the past year or so. Uh, it's something that I incredibly value. Yeah, organization is one of the, the key ones. And the other is like um, the notion of maybe not working in a team, but like, um, how would I phrase this? Well, not just presenting skills, but public speaking. Pu public speaking. Mm. I'm not saying like, I'll stand on an audience and do like a little debate. But the notion that you'll have to talk to some people who may be more senior than you and require a higher sense of formality or simply to a group of your peers and in a condensed amount of time and you can lose their attention, right. and that that's a very important thing. Because even you know, whether it's at interviews for uni, uh, when you're doing the applications, mm. or when you're trying to you know get someone to work with you, pitch an idea to someone, if you can't like confidently speak to someone, no matter how interesting you are, you put yourself at a disadvantage. And it is a learned skill. It's it's like a learned skill which you can learn through practicing. And you know, at Harrow we had all these like societies, like you know, society of history debating science everything and like all it basically was was some boy would come up with an idea um, I say boy because for those who don't know Harrow is a all boys boarding school um, you know someone would come up with an idea and give a lecture to it to 20 people for half an hour and if you do that enough times yeah. in your teens you're going to be pretty confident next time someone says speak to 10 people today yeah. at the meeting right oh uh, absolutely and I think well you know especially being young young founders um, with an idea that's you know, we joke about it, but you know, not your typical sort of vanilla SaaS or, you know, I, I won't sort of out anyone here, but sort of some, the, the usual hamster wheel of, of tech ideas, you know, generally a little bit further out there. Even you, for Silicon Valley investors, yeah. this isn't an idea you hear regularly. Right, no. exactly. It's um, the, the importance of the way you speak and the way you carry yourself to bring people with you. Mm. Um, and to have sort of real conviction uh, in you as people because I, I mean it's sort of something that people are generally aware of but mm. at, for an early stage startup the most important thing are the people behind the idea right perhaps even more so than the idea um, especially right at the early stage like who are the people behind this how are they thinking about this um, and you know if the idea is going to change somewhat in the future are these the people to take that through um, and so, yeah, I think you know, having, having conviction and, and being able to pull people with you is, is an incredible skill to have. Yeah, it's the most important skill you can have because I think, you know, even tech is a great example. There's no one who knows all of the technology. Like, what right. does that even mean, right? You're always going to work in a team. So if you can't assemble that team, which you do by convincing other people, no matter how clever you are, I mean, if I was asked what's, or I think I was asked, and this was what I said, what was Elon Musk's um, greatest like advantage, in my opinion? Like, what, what, what do I think made him so good? We were talking about him with some friends. And what I said was his ability to sell talented people on how cool his ideas were and the viability of them. Because one man can't run four or five different companies, simply yeah. put, unless he's got a team of 
almost as impressive CEOs for each of them, or, or equivalents of CEOs. Were you also in an, an interview? Or? Uh, I think it was just a sort of rant with some friends Ran, about it. Random conversation, yeah. We, we saw his like announcement that he like launched his like car on his rocket into space, and we were like, how on earth is, does this you know like man do things that governments like cannot? Yeah, well, he, he, Elon Musk is um, he's a he's a phenomenon in the sense you know Tesla has no marketing spend it's just elon and his twitter and uh you know look, look where that's taken him and the um, occasional event of him like throwing a steel ball on the yes, stage yeah, to break the window some, yeah. uh, you know quite suspicious dancing on stage this <laughs> is something of the sort um but it, he, yeah he, i mean he, he's an he's an incredible example there are an interesting point while, while you were sort of speaking about elon i think in the modern age i don't know what sort of conversations you had in particular at university um but there is a huge stigma around billionaires. Uh, people view being a billionaire as a bad thing. Um, and I, especially since Elon's taken over Twitter, has you know, been quite a strong vendetta against him. Mm. I, d I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. I mean, in general, I think, um, is there anything inherently wrong with uh, being a billionaire? But, but, well, that's a stupid question. So I think, is there anything wrong like with having blonde hair? Well, well even to the contrary, I think in, in the society we live in, I think you know, free market, well, relative free market capitalism, being a billionaire, amongst well, I was other things. Thinking a global stand here, so I was thinking I was including oh, sure. in this like you know, Prigozhin, like Putin's like cook turned oligarch turned warlord thing, right? Sure, <laughs> but my point would be that you know you become a billionaire by providing value to others, um, and in exchange yeah. you know they give you their money and buy into your products yeah i mean i think it's um not a lot comes from persecuting them because the more you persecute them the less taxes they'll pay in that given country i think i'm not not, not an expert on this no no, no yeah, that, that, um, that's that's true um what's a i mean a great example is so many sort of these billionaires nowadays are very rich people fl flocking to places like um the emirates and singapore right i mean great great examples of that being the case but uh, so, was there a lot of people? I mean, for context, which is I think an important piece of this, is the uni I went to for a year was Harvard. I think because of how much very wealthy people you have yeah, there, yeah. there's not a lot of hate going against the, the billionaires, let's say. Sure. And I don't think there were a lot of people who were against them. I also think that there's a sort of funny side point, which is, you know, Harvard's a big university. There's, I think, over 10,000 people in the wider community, the college alone. So there's around 2,000 people in each sort of class. Um, so you naturally don't meet everyone. You, you have certain affiliation, affiliation groups. And my groups were um, mainly focused around people who were into engineering, into tech, into entrepreneurship. In other words, for all of them, the sort of marker of success would be in fact becoming a billionaire. So right. I think that you know, well, that's the founder dream, right? Unicorn company. Yep. So I think it's, um, I have a biased data set, let's sure, say, sure, to sure, answer sure. that question. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we'll come on to, um, to Harvard U Chicago moving to America in a moment. But um, whilst we were sort of on Harrow, first sort of conversations about Arda, you know, right at the start mm. was towards the end of our, our upper six, our, our final year mm. at Harrow. And, um, I've got noted Which in my in the head. middle of the pandemic. Fun fact, an important right. fact. Right. Yeah. 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 Precisely. I've got. I've got noted here. There were, there were many great conversations to happen at Harrow. Uh, Churchill told uh, Samuel and Evans, 
at the age of 16 that he shall be the one to save London. Uh, King Hussein and uh, King Hussein of Jordan and uh, King Faisal of Iraq also went to, to school together. And they King were cousins, Faisal was so. actually in my boarding house. Was he? Yeah. Right. It was just so, so many, I'm sure, many great conversations there. Um, amongst them, Jan and Shub, speaking about, <laughs> speaking about Arda. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what are your sort of um, memories? Sounds uh, a little bit too sentimental for something that's still going on. But, you know, what, what, what were your memories of of the first conversations and, and where this all sort of began. Very, you know, sort of took a very different form, but, yeah. So it's the very sort of early thing, for a bit of context, Arda does, we make a software platform that makes drone delivery simple. The aim is we allow a traditional delivery operator to become a drone delivery operator. So we do drone delivery without all the faffing around and make it a lot simpler. Um, how that idea came about was, uh, this is sort of why I threw in that fact that this was all during the middle of the, pandemic in 2021 um so we were both well, for the majority of that problem not in lockdown maybe but online yeah at, part, least at home at home exactly school, yeah. um one of the interesting things in that time period for me was i at that point had already been flying building drones for for many for five years basically so i was well aware of how functional the technology was um especially if it was needed to be used in an emergency type situation where you know Maybe even if the technology isn't that developed, you still use it anyways. Um, and the one thing I didn't see, either in Poland or the UK or the US, that's sort of the three countries that I have family and relatives and friends in, drone delivery to deliver medical samples or in general medical goods, vaccines against COVID, wasn't being used. And it seemed like an interesting case because in Warsaw, it was literally cars. Like I think I sent you a picture of this when we were first talking like Skoda Fabia cars moving around patches that were, you know, maybe this size, right? It seems like drones were the perfect solution. Yeah. Um, and the really cool thing I remember about the early conversations we had was, um, well, the way we had the conversation was interesting. We had a friend called Richard who was in my Russian class and Richard heard about my idea. I'm, he, I'm sure Richard's listening. So. Yeah, yeah. My Richard. Um, <laughs> he remembered what I told him. I found this country called Ga Gambia on the map and it seemed interesting to me. He, he thought I said Ghana and he thought Shub's family lived in Ghana, which is not wrong. It's actually in Gambia. So it was a two-way error that ended up being good. And my family yeah. don't live in Gambia, but yeah. So, so in other words, a lot got, of things went wrong, but they went right. You got everything time. wrong except introducing <laughs> yeah, right. me to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless worked great. And it, it was really sort of cool because the one thing that Harrow gives is, as he said, it's a sense of community, which is you can speak with someone and operate on the assumption that what they're telling you is not exaggerated. It's almost certainly true. Yeah. And they're saying it in their best interest. And they probably made an effort to research it before, if, if they're being serious with you. So that was a cool thing. And I could just call you basically at the very early stages of this and just be like, right is this a viable place for this, right? And trust that I'd get a good answer and that, you know, you wouldn't have sort of have some vested interest in, like, replying in one way or another, yeah. which was really cool. Yeah, 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 yeah no, I, absolutely. And um, I'm sure we'll cover parts of the story later on in this conversation. I don't want to go into too much depth now. Uh, that will sort of be covered later on. But, um, yeah, after after leaving Harrow, we came, we came here to the Gambia for the first time uh, for me, the first time. For, for, you, yeah, for, yeah. You, for you, the first time. Uh, for us, the first time is Arda. And, um, well, for me, the nth time. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, we, so we, we ran a two-week uh, drone training program with, with the Red Cross Society, who we're still working with. Um, 
and, and sort of did a, a cool little project for volunteers and um, sort of developed a lot of traction, sort of figured out, that was a, a sort of market research and figuring out why hadn't drone delivery really taken off um, and sort of applying that to, to the West, to Europe, to America. Um, as they say, the rest is history. Um, but, you know, it's, it was, it's speaking about drones and, and America, a good tangent, sort of us going to America um, around the same time, well, the same time, uh, transitioning out of Harrow, uh, coincidentally, because we'd both made this decision before we started talking about Arna. Um, going to these universities. Going, going, yeah, yeah, both going to... So, again, it's a coincidence that worked out very well. We both decided to go to the US. In roughly the same time zone. So. Right, yeah. Yeah, in roughly the, both sort of, well, East Coast, Midwest, Chicago, um, Boston. Chicago, Boston. So that sort of uh, fortuitous and, and worked out very well for us. Um, I, I, my family sort of had no real relation to the US, no substantial relation to the US. Uh, I know you're, you're Polish-American, um, so a little bit more there, but why America? Yeah, so for me, I think one of the key things was, initially, it was why bother applying to, to, to America, right? Uh, and the answer for me was initially very simple, which is my dad told me a very simple thing, which is you're graduating high school once, right? You've got sort of one opportunity out there. So yes, I know you can say gap years, you can transfer, but you know, for most people that where you apply to uni, when you graduate high school is where you're gonna go to uni. And she told me like, look, you've got one chance at this, why not apply to Harvard, right? The worst that can happen is, you know, $50 or $6, the application fee is going to go down the drain, right? I'm going to pay for that anyway, so you're not going to carry the cost of that yarn. So I was like, he does have a point there, right? Why not apply? Um, I sort of, you know, it's, it was always a thing, like, for, for me growing up that I wanted, well, growing up, since I was like 14 and I realized university was an interesting concept. It was always a thing that I wanted to go to a good university, study something interesting. That went from being aerospace engineering to, to biomed, but ended up on being sort of an in-betweener, I guess. So, you know, applying to uni was always something I probably wanted to do. Um, never really considered something else. And Harvard, you know, simple reason of, uh, if you Google the rankings, it's the one that comes up as number one. And it seems silly almost not to apply if you have the chance. So I, I did apply. Um, and then when it was a case of choosing between US and UK, because um, I also applied to UK, because I wasn't assuming I'd get into Harvard. Um, UCL is where I got into in the UK. Um, the choice was pretty much based on exactly the question you asked, which is sort of why I gave this context, which is, you know, USA or UK. They're basically equally good schools, equally quality education, prestigious, da-da-da. So, well, Debatable. Yeah, debatable, but relative, relatively speaking. Sure, if, sure. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're both top tier. In the UK or Europe, you'd perceive UCL as being top tier, right? Sure. And the, the choice was essentially because of America, because I thought, right, what's the like best outcome you could get from Harvard? And the answer is you meet the right people, you get a good idea, you have the right people to execute it with, and you get some investors and you can do that idea and you have an amazing idea and you launch bad into that, right? Yeah. In the UK, that's not really a thing. The whole like university founder of a company, tech startup at uni, yes, yeah, sure, it's spoken about, but in practice, it's not very common. In the US, that seems to be I mean, at Harvard and MIT, I felt like that's almost for like half the people there, the point of being there. Mm. Um, and that's sort of what drew me, where the upside was bigger, I think, yeah. and the opportunity of it. 
that's um, it's fascinating. Because I think I, uh, my story of going to the US was, was quite different in the sense that I was sort of. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, um, academically, uh, in particular. But uh, what I did know is, the UK education system didn't appeal to me, and of course, you know, in a privileged position to be able to to say that you know I could steer away from the UK. But um, the US offered something really exciting in the breadth of academic opportunity, the, the flexibility. The UK, you would have there, to have chosen. Na- yeah, narrow yeah. down and you know pick a subject to go with and. I just didn't even know where to begin. I still don't, so thankfully I'm, I sort of don't have to, to confront that, at least at this moment. Um, and so the US op- opened up sort of a massive opportunity uh, and a really exciting opportunity of that. In terms of the US itself, I was, I guess I'd always been a bit apprehensive about the country. Um, growing up in the UK, there's sort of a subtle <laughs> vendetta against the US. Uh, you know, the classic stereotypes. I need not go into them. Obese people, and guns, and so on and so forth. But that sums it up pretty well. Does it? So sounds about right, yeah, right? Stereotype yeah. is exactly that. Um, and so, but you know, I, I in many ways, it's, it's one of the best things that that have happened to me. And, and New Chicago, I sort of got turned down from one or two other places as well. But um, I I love my first year at New Chicago. I, it was absolutely brilliant. And you know, obviously, I I don't have the experience to draw upon of, of going into any other university in the US, but I thought UChicago was brilliant. Um, Do you think it was UChicago or it was America that was... I, you know, I, I think it was UChicago. I, I, again, okay. I, I don't... Uh, but part of it was, of course, that the American educational system in UChicago wouldn't be UChicago without that. Um, mm. But, you know, the, the, the fact of having a core curriculum, something relatively unique to, to UChicago... Um, at least in the way that it does, I think only Columbia sort of sh- shares that. Um, and also, I mean, something that I necessarily didn't value when I was there the past year, uh, but something I've sort of come to value now and something that, you know, influenced my day-to-day was uh, really sort of a stringent and, and strong attitude towards uh, freedom of, of academic research and, and free speech. There was... Um, you know, there was a sort of real culture of open debate and um, open and free thinking. You know, like, a, again, it sounds sort of cliche, but an open field of battle of ideas, uh, which was sort of really attractive. Um, and I think that's exactly what university should be about. You know, you're young, expose yourself to a bunch of new ideas and and see how that influences you and, and see how you can respond to that. Um, and, and yeah, so, so especially in this day and age, it's something I I really valued, and um, yeah, well, made some made some really close friends, and you know, a shame not to not to you know still still be with them, but doing something really exciting with Ada as well. Um, but yeah, no, it was a, a year that I look back with with a lot of fondness. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, let's. Um, did you apply to the UK? Just had a question. I did. I did very reluctantly. What, what um, courses did you apply for? I have no idea. I, I did it that reluctantly. I I don't even know which universities I applied to. I think I did UCL, KCL, St. Andrews. Um, but I was sort of, I had my mind set on, on the US and it, was, it wasn't going to be anything else. Um, I, 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 even for my personal statement, I think I, I literally did a copy and paste of my um, 
of my common app essay. The personal essay. Yeah, yeah. which for anyone who knows, is sort of two different systems. That's um, that's not what UCAS wants. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different piece of writing. Um, so I did it very flippantly. I, I think it turned out well in the end. Um, but yeah, I was sort of very much had my mindset on not going to the UK. Interesting. No, I was definitely. I reckon I'd have stayed in the UK had it not been Harvard, maybe with the exception of, you know, had I applied, you know, I applied to Columbia as well, Princeton, right. uh, could have gone if, if I thought it got to there, but I reckon um, I would have otherwise stayed in the UK. Um, so yeah, <laughs> interesting yeah. change though. Very interesting. Right, so fast forwarding a little bit, we, uh, well, the first trip we took together for Arda was going to Miami for a week with, with one of our investors, Soma Capital. Um, but on, pulling ourselves back for, for, for well, about you know, a couple of weeks, um, the first money from investors hit the bank just before that time. April 10th, I believe, was the, was April, the day. April 10th, yeah. you got it memorised, very good. Um, that, for me, was sort of the, the moment at which all of, you know, all of the work we'd been doing on Arda to that point, all of the pitching that we'd been doing to VCs, uh, the plans that we had, for the summer to come to Gambia again, um, all of that came to life, and, and you know the the reality of you know right now it could be taking leave from university etc cetera, etc. Cetera, all of that came to life uh, for me at sort of the moment that check hit the bank and a sort of very surreal moment of right I have no idea what this money is like I have no comprehension of what it actually means but you know here are a few zeros on my in my bank account it's, it's, it's like, a weird what, experience yeah, raising what, what the hell? money from investors especially because you know as a 21 year old or 20 year old or t- to be honest most people will never see a hundred thousand dollars appear on a bank account that they have access to um and it's a very funny feeling yeah uh, it's a very funny feeling especially for us it's quite rewarding because um didn't like come about just like that we'd sort of were playing with getting Arda funded all the way from grants to investors yeah. to angels pretty much since January um, yeah. so, since January of 2022 so come in a bit. Uh, yeah. the fact that we got to do this in April was great because you know, four months depending on how you look at it is on one hand it's a lot on the other hand it isn't a lot but it definitely made it feel uh, very satisfying yeah yeah you might want to just pull in a little bit Jan just so yeah, know, everyone can see your face um, but yeah so, so then we took that we took that trip to Miami um Sort of stayed at the Soma Villa, a very nice Soma Villa, for um, for a, for a week or so, and uh, did the whole Miami Tech Week. Shazam met Jake Paul, um, which is, is good or bad depending on, on who you are. Um, yeah, what was um, how do you reflect on that experience? What was it like for me? That trip, I I, I recall it in almost. I have this thing. With it. Um, I've, I'm not going to say I, I don't usually have photographic memory. Um, but important things I remember very clearly. And for me, um, a sort of big inflection point where I realized, oh, wow, like I'm sort of starting working full time on this was that like airplane journey to Miami. Um, it was, you know, packing my sort of s- small suitcase or backpack, maybe and going to the Boston Logan Airport, flying out to Miami, walking outside and realizing, oh, wow, um, it's the middle of the not the middle, but it's the school year. And I've just sort of walked out of the airport at Miami and I'm not here to do some research. I'm not here to take a class. I'm here just to, to, to you know, to stay here for a night, take a cab and go meet our investors that just gave us money, spend a week with them here and then go out and start 
deploying this capital to build a company from it. Yeah. And you go like, wow, and the fact that it's attached to the sort of mental journey of it, if you will, is attached to the physical journey. It was pretty, pretty significant for me. What, was, uh, what, what did you tell your professors that you were doing? I have my own story, but what did you tell your professors that you are doing for that week? Um, I don't think I actually told them much. I, I sort of just like disappeared. Just, just, sort of um, just disappeared for a week. Yeah, that's a classic. Well, I told no, I yeah. think I told Professor Bettina, um, who is right. uh, someone that only plug I've done so far in the school, but someone I really appreciate. So, yeah, professor Paul Bettino, um is a Harvard professor who's also director of innovation, and he's the guy who's in charge of this class called uh, Engineering Science 195R, which I don't know where that name comes from, but in practice, it's build your startup with the advice of this professor and 20 people he's selected to be in the class are also doing that. Is that I think um, that's the only Elon person. Musk's next child? <laughs> <laughs> Engineering Science 95 art, it yes, could be. Yeah, it could be. Um, but yeah, anyways, that, I think that's the only professor who I like told I'm going there because he was there right. with us throughout the fundraising journey. And, and he's a mentor to both of us exactly. now and it's been a great deal of help. But um, yeah, I think I... Um, I, yeah, I pulled the old sick card for a week and super sick. It was yeah, Corona <laughs> was like a nice. Um, I don't know if I actually told people I had Corona because that you know you can get a bit of stigma when you come back. But yeah, that was um, or when you leave. Sickness was the excuse. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, but when you take a flight, yeah, yeah it's a little bit controversial. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a, 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 a very very fun week. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that was when was that? That was maybe sort of May. Um, mid-May uh, and then at the end of that academic year well, before that we'd made the decision but we took leave uh, so at the end of our freshman years for both of us um, for context maybe yeah. if you're not familiar leave, leave of absence it's taking a gap year essentially but for an undefined period of time yeah. it can be either, you know, as short as a semester as long as a few years and you do that in the middle of university yeah, and, and the US is very accommodating of that. Um, but I mean, it was a decision that we made largely together, but what was, um, how did you go through that process of eventually coming to that decision? So the, the, the funny thing was, was actually after the decision, it was very simple to do. Yeah. It, it took one email and one 10 minute Zoom call. Oh yeah, for, for me it, it was, was extremely uh, it was just, simple. Yeah, it was one form that I, filled, I put in two sentences. It was a very, very simple process. Yeah, um, so it was very simple to do. I think, um, it's definitely, I considered like taking gap year t- to work sort of between uni and uh, between high school and university. Um, I just want to do sort of some freelance software development work and so sort of travel around uh, using the money from that. So the idea of a gap year or taking leave from university is always something that you know, was there in the back of my mind. It wasn't a totally sort of foreign concept. For me, I, there was this interesting thing of it, which is if you read the leave of absence forms, it says you can pretty much come back any time within yep. something like five or eight years. Yep. And while you're out, you also don't have any obligations. It's not like, a, oh, take less classes or you don't take exams. You, you, you don't, you're not at university in any way yep. in terms of that. It was a very interesting thing. So when I read into that, I was, I was thinking, like, how do I explain this to you know, my parents or my professors or my tutors, that sort of stuff there. Um, sort of uh, academic tutor you get assigned when you're at college. Um, don't know if that's a thing elsewhere as well. Um, how I was going to explain it, and I thought about it right. Well, if the worst thing that can happen by doing a leave of absence is you, you know, mess up whatever you wanted to do, then you come back to university, no questions asked. And if the best thing that happens is whatever you wanted to do in that time goes well, 
then that upside is equivalent to what someone would aim for after getting a university degree, right. arguably after getting a business school degree as well. Yeah. So if it's right, have a, have a shot at something that could be end goal career-wise for, for many people and is end goal career for many people. Yeah. Or come back to uni. It was like, this is, there is no downside to doing this. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, it's been, um, well, I, I, it, was, it was also a very practical decision in the sense it would just raise money. Um, we sort of had a, a massive opportunity. We knew exactly what we do. I mean, yeah, we, we, we had plans as to what we'd do. Um, and so it was like, right, like, you know, it, it, as you said, it was risk-free. And so you can literally come back at any time. You don't have any commitments. Um, and you'll come back, no questions asked, as long as you don't do anything too silly, right? Um, and so it was, a, it was an excellent opportunity in that sense. And um, I mean, for you, I don't know how it's been for you, but for me, Chicago, I'm still sort of tied into, so I still receive uh, university-wide emails, um, still part of uh, the, the biggest school, school paper. Um, and, you know, the one thing is I'd really like to, you know, have... Uh, you know, be be in person with my friends again, uh, rather than sort of just sporadic communication online. That's that's probably the one thing that's been been difficult or that I, I somewhat regret. Um, but yeah, are you still sort of tied into the university in yes, some ways? Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I've lost any friends. Yeah, in that right. time, definitely. If anything, in a funny way, it's easier because you, you set aside the time with, to call with someone. So it almost makes it better because you, know, you have one hour to properly talk with someone. Or, mm. And actually a few of my friends also did take leaves. Um, some of them had a few older friends graduated. So I definitely don't feel like I'm the only one who's not taking classes all the time. Um, but another interesting thing about this as well that, that I've noticed is it almost... It, it's shown me what matters with university in the sense that the best thing you can do with it... because. I, in a way, I, went, I haven't graduated university, but I have the experience of graduating university. I went to college and now I'm not there anymore because I'm working. So it's the same feeling as graduating yeah. university, just <clears throat> without degree. Um, and I understand, right, what in that year really helped me? And the answer is, well, it's the people I've met. It's with students, professors, third parties that visited the campus, all those sorts of things. Um, and that's really number one. Number two, you know, it's I think everyone is aware of this, but the brand of the, of the university sort of st st stuck to you. Uh, and three, it's you can you know you perceive to be a bit mature because you you're now perceived to be a university student rather than a high school student. And the thing you learn in the classes themselves, you you learn from the people in the classes more so even than from the professors. I mean. You know, uh, and it's the environment. All, yes, it's the environment. yes, exactly. Because with all due respect to professors, they're also teaching from something that's been written, right? They're not just you know. So I think the the greatest advantage is the people there, and I've sort of realised that right. If I was to come back, I would be in a lot better place yeah. than other students. And even now, I'm in touch with all those communities there, and I see myself being almost more valuable in a way. In the sense that you know, there's people reaching out to me. Oh, I'm looking to do this project. Could you give yeah, me some yeah. advice? That's, yeah, that's Pro probably you've had that too. I mean, yep. you, you've introduced me even to people that have reached out to you with that, um, with that in mind, and it puts you into a more. It, it's almost a cheat card because you can be you're perceived to be part of the university even though you're not part of it. So I don't know if you have that as well, but I'm mm. sure that yeah, 
you you've been introduced to new people at the university right yeah <laughs> that's the beauty of like the world of zoom in a way yeah 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 well absolutely i think um again it can sound sort of somewhat flippant saying this yeah having the luxury of, of just taking leave but um you know th there's a great deal you learn in the real world and i think more people should be open to the idea of not going straight into university as a default after secondary school or high school but you know there's a world of opportunity out there a degree is you know also becoming in many cases less and less valuable that's not to say it's not valuable but in many cases and for certain people it's not as valuable and there's great opportunity in the real world and if you're a young person who you know takes responsibility for your actions has some sort of drive and ambition and some sort of dedication to work, then there are a lot of people, even just random people you meet off LinkedIn, to people who you've been connected to through friends or, uh, you know, parents or whatever, that will be willing to help you along the way. Uh, like, people will bend over backwards for a young person with potential. Yeah, that's true. That's um, true. And, and, you know, they'll sort of, you know, bear, bear your flag for you and and really help you if you are there and present yourself as someone to be helped and to to be supported um and that you're going to take uh responsibility for you know your own your own direction of travel i definitely would would add caveat to that though which is that taking leave or gap year is a great idea if the aim of that is to take on more responsibility than mm. you would have done by going to university because yeah with all due respect to university it's just high school except they don't check attendance or in some cases they still do so it's just it's an extension of high school it's not you you don't get more responsibility and at the end you apply to a job instead I guess of the university. So just adjust that a little bit. It's a definitely an extension of, of boarding school in, in many Even ways. Even more so. Yeah, day school you have, sorry, that, that, that obvious added addition of being full-time with, with uh, your peers. Um, well, but again, you know, living by yourself, you, you, know, you figure out how to do your laundry and then what right. else is there to do? <laughs> like, you know, and you've probably known that already anyway. So, so it's, you know, the, the, it's not like a big drop into the unknown. Um, as much as people perceive it that way, I think. Um, yep. I think the key with the, that, like the advice to take a gap year and leave being good is if you take on more responsibility. So, for example, you know, the whole like, oh, I'm gonna go my, you know, find myself find drunk yeah, on a beach in Thailand, yeah. right? That's you know, that's silly. I've heard that's a great um, place to find yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so, you know, that, that's not going to teach you much, right? But if you do think like you know, get a job or volunteer something you know, there's a bunch of people who like come to Gambia to like, yeah. do some volunteering and there's another pass through here that we meet interesting things to do but that's the key I think. if you have something interesting to do on leave that would put you in a in more interesting position afterwards that, that's the only case so, um, yeah I mean that ma it makes me think of um, Vivek Ramaswamy who's a uh, sort of Republican presidential candidate he's a bit of an outlier candidate but a candidate nevertheless uh, sort of saw one of his his Instagram or YouTube shorts that said one way to, to success is set yourself aside from the pack and you know travel the opposite direction but if you're going to do that you have to be right um, and you have to have conviction when you do it you can't you know there's no point in setting yourself aside from the pack and you know being unique and be flailing about or, well, you or can not be sort unique of, in a very negative way right, as well, right? exactly exactly yeah. uh, so I thought that was sort of particularly particularly um, relevant I think um, that that's the that if I if I'd say what's like a tangible benefit in terms of how people perceive you if, if you take and even doing something like this, is you immediately have this like funny card of um, 
have an interesting story to tell. Yes, which is yeah. very captivating. It makes it very easy to meet new people and attracts new people as well, which yeah. is a very cool like phenomenon. Yeah. As well, and there's always this like card of people ask you, "Oh, how old are you?" They're expecting to yes, hear yeah. 24, 25, 26. You go, oh, 20 or 21." Right. And like, "Oh, cool. Let, let, yeah. Let's talk about this, right?" Yeah. So that's a cool thing where it makes makes meeting people a lot easier. You you know, you can that cold email becomes a lot more interesting. It's yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I think that's something that's very particular to the U.S. as well. But I've got a few sort of founder friends in the U.K. and being a young founder in the U.K supposedly is is very much looked down upon um perhaps not so sort of directly but at least there's a lot of um uncertainty perhaps is the word around somebody being a young founder and not coming into being a founder with with experience industry experience in particular um there's a certain stigma around that so i think that's certainly something particular to the u.s but it's definitely very true in the u.s uh, for sure. And just, uh, I have a sort of interesting person I follow on LinkedIn, actually. Um, I can't remember his last name. Ilya is his first name. I think he's of Russian descent or Ukrainian descent. He's a professor at Stanford who, like, studies startups and VC. Posts interesting sort of uh, data he collects about this. And one th- interesting thing that um, he published, I think it was even yesterday, was if you're the founder of a company that's failed, but you've been doing it for... Um, one or two years that yields you 2.4x career advancement over someone who is working full-time so, right. so let's say two people graduate they're both 21 if one of them was for two years so now they're 23 working at a company the other was founding a company and after so there's also 23 after two years completely fails and he applies for a job at that same company he'd get put in a position that's 2.4 years ahead of his peer who was working there conventionally before sort of up the traditional ladder um and if it's a successful startup um so it had an exit that wasn't let's say uh you know f- f- failure essentially uh, from the perspective of you know from, from financials uh, that's 3.1 years advance mm. so it's a very interesting thing where it's not just perception people actually value whatever it is that you learn by going down this very independent path of like uncertainty yeah the people value something that people get from that quite a lot well, the, you know, being a founder, you, you have to wear, you have to wear many hats and you have to apply yourself across many different, uh, different fields and take on many different tasks that, you know, before you were a founder, you would have never seen yourself doing. Um, and we have a number of sort of examples to draw upon, even in Gambia, just doing very, very random, random things on a Monday afternoon, taking a canoe across the river. Uh, to visit a health centre. To filling out customs forms for dual use equipment in right. Poland. Just to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very random stuff. Yeah. But you know, you have to apply yourself across a number of different things and, and face a lot of different t- different challenges. Right, you know, from fundraising to visiting, you know, health centres and doing market research in person, whatever it is. Yeah, there's a sort of real broad spectrum of of experiences that that you undergo. Um, like, what's been, you know, for, for you personally. How have you? How do you think you've developed, over, personally developed over the course of, of the last year or so because of being a founder because of because of Arda and the work we're doing. I think there's a few things. So one is something that we touched on earlier, which is not taking traits that I've fought before because I had a sort of privileged upbringing for granted. People show up on time. People communicate clearly. People communicate politely and in a coherent way. 
that's not for granted. It's actually a very positive trait. That's quite, um, yeah, quite, yeah, unique and sets people apart. So that's a very important thing that, that I sort of learned. I think it was also realizing where there is an advantage in doing something yourself versus in essentially outsourcing something. Um, you're often taught at school and university for that matter to do things on your own, right? What's like the worst thing you could do at school that like sends you to like academic hell? It's getting someone to do your homework for you, right? Whereas when you're doing a company, sometimes when let's say you're in the middle of trying to launch a product, it would be a waste of time and in the sense of how much you, you value your time to, for example, not pay someone to, you know, move something across for you that would take one day. Because if I was doing something myself and say someone told me, right, you know, you can ship a package for $400, for $400 or spend a day in the car to move it. I go, yeah, I'm not spending $400, bang, bang, done, right? Moved in the car. Yeah. Easy. But when you realize, right, okay, there's this thing of like opportunity costs because suddenly you're the hat of a founder and you're running a company and that one day could have been spent launching a product that then could reap far bigger rewards. Ah, okay. Um, so, so one thing and the other is managing uncertainty. Mm. Like for some things that we're doing, it, there isn't a manual for, if, I mean, try and Google how to launch a drone delivery service in West Africa. To be fair, ChatGPT gives a pretty good answer. ChatGPT gives a pretty good answer <laughs> about how to do it. a pretty good answer, yeah. <laughs> but it, it is, there, there is no playbook for it. Um, and there is no playbook for dealing with these things. So you've got to manage uncertainty because despite it being uncertain, you can't just say, right, how long is this going to take? I don't know. Yeah. You, you, you have to, chances are you're not going to be right, but you have to try and estimate how long it's going to take. So managing uncertainty, um, realizing what traits in people are like the really like important ones. Mm. Even the thing like, I'd much rather work together with a engineer who's polite on time and very organized than one who's a bit better, but you know, using the British term, complete a complete in every other aspect of communication. I'd choose the slightly worst engineer who'd end up being a lot better because of those communication skills, for example. And that's something that's very non-obvious, right? In school, who's the best? It's the guy who gets the highest mark, not the guy who got that mark in the smartest and most effective and you know cleanest and efficient way and you know coordinated it smartly with a group project, for mm. example. So, so it's, you think about things from a very different angle as well. I'm gonna I'm gonna push you a little because I think yeah. you swerved I, either purposefully or not, probably not purposefully, but I'll give you the credit uh, benefit of the doubt. But for you personally, like on a personal level, mm. how have you changed? So, I mean, I, I've come through the journey with you over over the past year or so. So I've sort of seen the incremental changes and probably couldn't put my finger on exactly what has changed. But if someone was to have met you right before you started, I don't know, if someone was to then, you know, go away, never see you again, never speak to you again, then meet you again now, what are the parts of you that have, that have changed? So it's a difficult question, because, you know, if you're the person yourself, that's yeah, a question, yeah. it's hard it's to some, be like, it, well, what was some, I year? We're doing some therapy here, Yeah, it's like, what was I like a yeah. year or two years ago? And it's funny, because I also ask myself, because of how young I am, right, say if I took, you know, if you ask a 35-year-old what they were like 10 years ago, they'd still be a functioning adult with a driver's license that lives in an apartment and has a job. Yeah. If you ask me where I was 10 years ago, I was 11. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and same here, like, I, I struggle to separate what happened because simply I grew two years or a year older. Sure. And because, you know, that and, and what because of Arda. But because of Arda, what personal changes, 
Right, hold on. You, you've you've uh, not because of Arda over the past. Over the let's let's assume that all of it's because of Arda, even though it okay. may not be. But yeah, what, what are the personal changes you've gone through? Part of that maybe because you know you're not you're not at university, you're not in education for the first time in you know however many years. Mm. Uh, you know you're living away from home more continuously than mm. ever before. Yeah, mm. would have been the the general personal changes. Um, I'd say that the goals I set are a lot more ambitious, but the plans I make are a lot more concrete. Um, That's a good answer. In other words, as arrogant as it may sound, I've so, uh, sort of, over the course of the last two years, proven to myself that if I set something as a goal and learn how one could possibly achieve that goal, there is a fairly high chance that it works out. Or at least you get close to it. Mm. But at the same time, I've learned, like, if you don't plan something, that's equivalent to just signing up to fail it. Like, if you don't think about, for example, how you're going to raise money from investors and you, you think you're just going to send a bunch of cold emails and that's how it happens, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. as simple as, even though what, maybe what it feels like in your head. So I think it's, I've, I'm setting more ambitious goals, but making more concrete and realistic plans and timelines for them. Um, that's one concrete one. Second, I think better managing uncertainty. Um, I'm a very, I think, calculated person. I try to be a very calculated person. I think that's a big sort of train of, like, trait of mine. And in, in some ways, you know, it's people sort of told me it's almost like it feels like you know weird. Um, but and the thing is, if you're young, you don't have a lot of responsibility. You don't manage a lot of uncertainty. So being very calculated is very easy. But if you have a lot of responsibility and you have high goals and trying to make them work, say like launching drone delivery or figuring out how to flight test something or developing some software. Those are difficult things, but you have to manage the uncertainty of them. So I'd say better at managing uncertainty in the sense of going like, right, right now I don't know how maybe to do something, but if I spend some time figuring out how to do it, I could come up with a plan. And if I have a plan, that's doable. So I'd say those two are the big ones. The third one is, I think, how I think about money is an interesting one. Right. Um, I used to think about money as being the end goal of sort of the end goal, yeah, of work, of career, of a company for myself. And that's not to say I wouldn't want to have a lot of money. It's to say that um, money is a tool, not an end goal. Money in and of itself doesn't do much if you just have it. You use it for things. And you can use it to get people to work with you. You can use it to buy things that make things easier for you. Um, and that's the thing what happens. Because when you're dealing with a sort of a bigger sum of money than you've ever dealt with before, like when we raised our investments, and doing bigger making the biggest spendings you've ever made in your life you're not thinking about how do i save the most money which is what you'd be doing with your personal finances you're thinking how can i spend this best yeah because you that, that money's there to be spent to yeah. grow the company you if you sat if you raise that investment you saved 100 percent you'd get the opposite of people congratulating you after a year you'd really get like a slap in the face for like you know yeah <laughs> what, what, what what have you been doing right? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, so those are the sort of free things i'd say yeah, very good. What's um, so leading on from that? What's been um, the toughest, the toughest single moment, maybe a, a sort of a time or a thing that happened or a more gradual change? What's been the, the toughest moment of uh, working through Arda? Oh, uh, I'll, I'll I'll leave out names and concretes of this one, but um, we had this one case where we had delayed our launch, but we thought we 
um, we, we thought we had it now, as in, in, in a good way. We, we thought we were about to, to do it, and we thought we had a date nailed, and it was going to work. And the reason was we wanted to sort of, well, basically test our product for sort of a two-week test period. And we thought, okay, let's not, like, we made the mistake before of trying to cheap out on working with people. Let's go a bit higher budget, and let's hire some professionals to do this. But we end up getting some professionals to do this thing. I don't want to say this thing because it's very obvious if I say it what it was. Because we just did it once. That's how much of a lesson we learned from it. But we got these professionals to do it. And of a project that was meant to be two weeks, after four weeks, I heard the news that the project was actually in a worse place off than it had started. The development of, let's say, the product was actually gone back. It was actually regressed. And that was the hardest thing because I was like, oh, wow. We gave this to professionals who in this particular area we thought were our seniors, our superiors, that more experience. And they like completely effed it. Like about as effed as you can have something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I just thought like, wow, like there is almost no, like I, I, I heard the phone call and my response was no response. I was just like, oh, okay. I, I sort of <laughs> stunned, almost. hung up the phone. I was just sort of stood there, like looking out my window being like, yeah. like what? Like what? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's, yeah. It's just um, it's it's like booking a flight to, to you know, you, you're like um, I don't know, you you're you're like older siblings' wedding or something, and you go to the airport. And the airport just blew up. You, you don't even know what. You just go like, what on earth, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's so bit different scales, but yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, I mean, you know the moment I was talking about. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, it, 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 what yeah. was your perception of that um, of that same moment? Well. I mean, look, it's, uh, you've got to, in the moment, of course, there was a great deal of, of frustration. Um, mm. But sort of looking back, you know, <laughs> in, in the nicest possible, possible way, like, shit happens. Um, and yeah. you, you, you sort of have to dust yourself off, pick yourself up um, and look forward. Uh, because otherwise you're not going to go anywhere. Um, so, yeah, that's... Um, um, yeah, that's what you learn. Because at that point, it's a case of like, right, either this is where you like raise the white flag or you go like, okay, right, this happened, what do I do, sort of, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, look, for me, I, I think the one thing, I mean, this is relating to this, but also I, the question I ask you, but more generally, personally, is um, I've learned to, to, to take responsibility for my own happiness. That sounds very sort of soppy and, and wet but I mean that sort of more um, even more practically um, if you centre your sort of mental stability well-being around things that you have no control of um, and people you have no control of um, that's sort of you know a one directional road to something not very good um, yeah. uh, and a lot of instability of that so you know, I, I think one of the, the biggest steps that I've tried to take over the past year is uh, take responsibility for my own, my own, you know, my own actions, my own mental well-being more than anything else. Um, and that's, you know, people who meditate don't shut up about, shut up about meditation, but that's been, you shut know, up. yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, that's, you know, been doing things like me yeah. meditating, um, just taking stock of, of, you know, my goals and, and what I want to do and, 
yeah, that sort of it sounds a bit hippy, but it's um, you know, in, in uh, the roller coaster of of late teenage life and you know mid mid teenage life, it can very easily get sort of swept away by things that are happening around you. Um, as that's been something that's very important that I've learned to do over, over the past year or so. It's a very important skill to learn to. I, I do get what you mean by, by take responsibility for your own happiness and sort of not tying it to external things. The, the way I approach it personally is actually, it, it's very simple. It's, I've realised that there pretty much isn't a situation, within reason, there aren't situations in which you can't do something. And as bad as this may sound, you do sort of approach certain moments in the startup journey where you're like, right, if I was to give up right now, and in two years someone asked me, oh, what happened to that idea? And I said, oh, this happened, so we stopped. Most people go, yeah, fair enough. Like, you, you could, very easy excuses so, to, to, to other people. And what that made me realize is that it's pretty much most of the things it, you're doing, you're, I'm not going to say choice, because obviously some things you were higher chance to, to go down, some situations, right? Like, you didn't choose to be in a difficult situation at your job. You, you didn't sign up to be in that difficult situation. You signed up for a job that put you in that situation. But right. you've got a level of agency over wherever you are. Right, and there's a good analogy of like life's a chessboard, right? Where you're playing chess, and like until the pieces are out, and there's a winner, it, it's it's on, right? Which is you you can't not make a move. Yeah. You sort of whatever happens, you you respond, and you have to respond in the way that makes the most sense at any given moment. So in other words, whatever happens, unless you want to like just quit life, you're gonna have to do something. As difficult as that like sounds, and in some situations during the sort of startup journey that is the case you, you do have to do something but, i mean that, that's right? sort of the great the great thing about having to run a startup and you know i guess in, in your personal life you can sort of sweep things under the carpet and not address things and sort of just move on and do something else in a startup and especially when you're working with a co-founder mm. you have to address things in the moment right yeah uh, you, like you have to respond uh because you've got people who you're responsible to you've got a service or a product whatever that you're responsible to you've got somebody else that you're responsible to you just can't you, you can't not make a decision um, it's a great thing because university doesn't have that for example right you're responsible for your own grades period right and, and so you can yeah you can you can go by the wayside you can you know you can stop coming things, to a class right. and get an f on and not pass the class and right. then it's going to be effective yeah and um one of the things that i had noted down was that i wanted to cover was how we deal between you know with disagreement and arguments mm. between ourselves and for me, that, like, the biggest thing is not sweeping things under the carpet and confronting them in the moment. Right? I'd much rather have X number of the small disagreements that we hash out about small things on the spot, relatively small things on the spot, rather than it building up and it resulting in, in sort of one big melodrama at the end. Mm. I think that's something that we've mm. actually right from the start sort of done really well. I mean, something that's naturally clicked, whether that's because of a similar upbringing at Harrow or, or whatever. But... Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. An interesting point, if I may add there, is with these like conflicts, the interesting thing that you notice is the more like um, eloquent and the more coherent you are in how you articulate Absolutely, areas yeah. of disagreement, you are. I'm often surprised by how little disagreement there actually is. Like, if you consider a problem or a conflict between two people to be a pie chart or a, or a sort of diagram maybe of that entire circle maybe 20% of that share is things you actually is a share that represents what you actually like if we're talking about what color to paint a car 
20% is we just fund them. Like I say, I want the mirror to be black. You say you want the mirror to be red. But the really 80% of the car, like we tend to agree on. Yeah. And that's the thing. If you've like chosen to work with someone, usually that's because you agree on most things. So when you actually talk about the problems, you find that there isn't that much you disagree on. And it's often you're disagreeing because you've said something in a way that didn't convey what you had in your mind or someone interpreted it differently than how you wanted them to interpret it. Yeah, I, I think tied to that, another incredibly important thing is just approaching it with an open mind. You've got to look mm. at it, and this is very hard to do, it's something I, I still sort of struggle with, but you've got to always come back to the perspective of, right, you both want the best thing for the company. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's very easy to sort of take sides and argue your side persistently. Especially because there's always a my idea, your idea. Because yeah. you, you never come up with an idea at the same well, time. And th but that's, I know that's one of the things I'm very grateful for is we have, as you probably sort of gleaned somewhat from this conversation, we have different backgrounds. Mm. If nothing else, from a purely practical point of view, Jan's more technical than I am. I'm more business orientated than, than Jan is. You know, there's much more around that, but it's sort of in a really simplistic sense. Jan's the head of our product, I'm head of business development. So that's a natural split that we have. Um, and so we, we approach we approached uh, problems from different angles, right? Mm -hmm. A good general rule of how we approach arguments is um, when we're doing drone operations, you always come from the first perspective of, right, safety, security, reliability. I'm coming from the perspective of, right, how is this gonna look to customers? How can we optimize? Um, how can we optimize the way this looks? How can we make this as lean example, as possible? If you want to test the product, the best way to do it is test it 100,000 times in 100,000 right. different configurations. And if you're going from a business perspective, the best way to test a product is to just give it to a customer for money and they will test it after buying it, right? So the, the key is you know, finding that in between where like, okay, right. right, this actually does eliminate the like technical risk without going into like silly levels of, you know, well, what if the wind blew from that direction and then that happened and then like, you know, like there was an interference from the sun or something like. Yeah, and that's the yeah. communication is incredibly, even well, we're in person now, so we're speaking pretty much through the whole day, but even when we're uh, not in the same place, we'll be on phone calls for many hours each day. Mm. Um, that's incredibly important. And that's, you know, that, that those are the times when things move forward, things are sorted out and we progress, the rest of it is sort of, right, now we know our task, let's get on with it in our own time. But you know, those are really the moments when we're speaking that things progress uh, and that things are, are actively solved. Yes, yes. Um, right, okay, we've, we've sort of had vignettes about it, we've uh, sort of skirted around the edges somewhat. I'm gonna ask you directly now to address um, the big thing that we've been alluding to and been talking about, ARDA. So you know, why ARDA for you? What makes you get up every morning uh, and gives you sort of the energy to, to work on order for the day? It's a very, very simple you? thing and the, the question, it's an answer to the following question, why now? Very simple. In 10 years time, oh, good example here. I have a younger brother who is now six. When he will be 21 in 15 years, it will be the year 2038. If in, the brother 20, if in the year 2038, my brother was to tell me, I want to do a drone delivery company, I'd tell him, it's a cool idea, maybe go intern at one, but you're going up against huge companies that are doing this, it's an established industry, it's regulated, there's already insanely high levels of tech developed, and 
whatever innovation you think you're going to bring to the table, you know, it's just not going to be there. Like try and do something else. If you like that space, maybe, you know, go, go work there, go intern out that company. In other words, I believe that in 10 years time, it will be as established of a industry as airlines or car manufacturing. Well, yeah, sure. You get the Elon Musk founding a Tesla every now and then, but to be honest, you don't really, it's a very, fixed industry that exists and it's very hard to, to get into for new players but now is an interesting time because i think that now is going to be the we're at the time in history of sort of right you're not inventing the drone you're not inventing last mile delivery you're combining them into drone delivery yeah and you're not you're never going to be at a point in time sort of in the future where you've got that opportunity you can you will be able to improve existing drone delivery operations but you're not going to be able to be the one who's deploying it and laying it out. And you won't be able to do what we did, which is you, know, you engage your government and you're the first people who, made have, who might have spoken to them about drone delivery. It's not going to be the case, simply. Yeah. Well, uh, so, yeah, I mean, for me, it's look, there's a massive opportunity on the horizon. So opportunity window, in other words. If, yeah. if I could just sort of finish off, it's the opportunity window. That's the key word I missed. It's right. a window of opportunity that's closing. I'll always be able to finish university. I'll never again be able to be in the year 2021, 2022, 2023, founding a drone delivery company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, I, I, there's a book by an author, I think her name is Carlota Perez. Um, that may be wrong. Um, but anyway, basically she sort of lays out the path of a technology from first eruption to sort of mass adoption. And in between there's sort of a turning point that takes it from that eruption, that novel, sort of new thing that's only in the hands of a few people to this, you know, fully fledged thing that's deployed across uh, all consumers or businesses who it's want their hands on it. Gaunt or a gas technology adoption curve represents that concept quite well. Right. And so we're at sort of a lovely point, which is a turning point. And we've got a sort of really big opportunity now to make this that thing, that, that mass adopted thing, make drone delivery a full blown reality. I mean, the first thing that we buy into and, you know, that market more generally has brought in, has bought into already is that drones are a big solution for logistics, right? From a public health point of view, uh, the impact that they've made in, in Rwanda, for example, bring down maternal mortality by 88%, what it can do for, for vaccine coverage. It boils down to a very simple concept. One drone carrying a small package is infinitely more efficient, yeah. quick and simple than one car carrying one package. Right. Rather than the, you know, the existing you know it's yeah exactly a car or a truck doing that it's like elephants moving raisins and makes last mile incredibly inefficient uh, and so you you know apply that to, to food delivery on demand delivery more generally and it's a very compelling use case and yeah absolutely we're at sort of a golden time uh for the technological development in in that space um and yeah i mean doing something well at least from an, an analogy point of view much like uber it's sort of really opening up uh, the way taxis were being used, how the Mac became made computers to be used uh, very intuitively by the mass population. Um, yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a big opportunity window. Um, right, I mean, let's uh, address why we're here. Um, I'll hand it over to you. What's, um, why are we in the Gambia? Yeah, so Gambia's an interesting country in West Africa. It's sort of jutted into Senegal the um, right sort of at the border, I guess, of where the Sahara Desert sort of finishes on, on the North Bank. Um, 
And the interesting thing about the country is it's split in half by a river, and there's one bridge in the country that crosses that big river. And it's not in the capital city. It's actually around 150 kilometers east of the capital city. And that's not because it's a, you know, there's no money to build a, a bridge, it's because the bridge is very, very wide. The, sorry, the, the river is very, very wide at this point. It's around 40 minutes on boat, can take up to two hours, um, something like five to eight kilometers, depending at which point. So it's basically the ocean just entering the continent. So it's, yeah. it, when you're on it, it's hard to call it a river. You're thinking like, you're on the, you're on the ocean, it's salt water. Right. And that creates a lot of unique logistical problems here. Um, when we were on the north bank of the country, which is the, let's say, more isolated one, um, we were even talking to some of the doctor, and he's explaining to us at the health centre, the main hospital in Essau, a town there, um, sort of unique problems they face, where, you know, they have all the tools they need to do a given procedure. The people there who are trained with it, they have an operating table, all the medical, and I'm not a doctor, but, you know, all the stuff you need for that, but they don't have, like, one stupid little medication or one, you know, like certain type of blood, or a certain medication that maybe has specific storage conditions. And because of that, someone quite literally, unfortunately, dies. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. So more, more generally, just And had there been a simpler way that doesn't take like four hours to get to that place, yeah, that person would have been alive. Been that's the key thing to have yeah. there. And so just to add a bit of context to that, Africa has been sort of the early front runner for drone technology because of the incentives that Jan just mentioned that it, are particular to this region and the developing world more generally. But in the Gambia, what we've got is, we can set an example for the rest of the world. Um, it's a perfect logistical platform and environment to do that. And so over the course of the next month or so, we're really gonna show, and we'll be showing, you know, how can drone delivery become a, a reality? So we'll be, uh, taking off across 10 distribution hubs over the course of uh, 30 days uh, to really demonstrate the scalability of this and, and serving an area, a total area, area of around 50 health centers um, and a quarter of a million people. So really exciting uh, month or so ahead for us. And you know, you, you'll hear, hear from us more as, as we go through with that. Yeah, and just before we sort of wrap up, mm -hmm. a, couple of, uh, a couple of questions. Uh, first for Arda, what's on, what's on the horizon? You know, we're in the Gambia right now, but looking forward a little bit, right, well, what's exciting? In the shortest term, it's an amazingly completed pilot program with super happy stakeholders that are working with us to expand this here in the country. Um, we're only operating in the West Coast region, which is one of six regions in the Gambia, I think. Yeah, you put me on the spot there. West Coast, NBR, CRR, URR, LRR, no, one of five. Um, <laughs> so it's... Uh, expanding to those other ones. Because um, you know, here it's simplest for us to do so. We've already operated here. But the really exciting stuff for me is taking this beyond to places like the US especially, because that's, well, one, from a business standpoint, it's the biggest market, but two, it's that's where the most last mile logistics that's on demand is happening. Yeah. Um, and I think it's in a very interesting way. Uh, I think a lot of people say this, that the US is a third world country that has a lot of money. Um, that's a term I've often heard. Where there are a lot, of, yeah, there's a lot of pharmacy deserts and food deserts. Yeah, pharmacy yeah. deserts are a great example. Um, logistics is there's a lot of money, which means the problems get solved, but they solve they get solved in pretty uncost effective ways. And I think that as much as in the Gambia, in the Gambia, there's a very obvious advantage to using drones, right? You go, no bridge, okay, drone, nice. You don't need a car. <laughs> Simple to understand. 
But I think in the US there's a lot of interesting challenges in especially healthcare, but also food and in general last mile delivery that drones uniquely solve, especially with our solutions. So what I'm super excited about is deploying that there because I think that there is um, a lot of reasons for which a solution like ours, because there are of course different drone delivery solutions in the world, would be adopted in the US and popular and allow us to, to, to grow there and have a good impact, especially in the sort of, you know, launch pad states like um, the South Louisiana, Mississippi, Kentucky, those sorts of places, Florida. Yeah, right. Uh, absolutely. And I think just, just to add that as well, um, off the Gambia, there's also a massive opportunity within the African continent. As you said, like in, in, the that, yeah, in, in the short, short term, that's where the biggest opportunity is and, and where the biggest difference we can make is. So we'll also be looking to, to places like Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, uh, and sort of broadening the impact there. Right, final question, and I asked this to Andrew, uh, one of our advisors who Andrew did the, the first interview with. Um, again, hoping to make this a little bit of a tradition with guests, uh, but what adventure are you on? Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, art is definitely an adventure, so I'll, uh, I can definitely put this one um, as the adventure I'm on, right? Um, I mean, there's nothing in my life that's comparatively big in terms of both potential upside as well as commitment that I'm, I'm working sure on. I'm sure the girlfriend so. will be disappointed with that answer. Nah, she <laughs> made her away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, that, that's, the, that's the, simple, the simple thing for me there is Arda. And it's a very cool adventure to be on for a few reasons. Um, number one, you sounds very arrogant, but you asked me a question that's bound to, to result in that. So it's fine. Um, you're doing something that no one else has done before, which is always cool. Like, the way I think about it is, if some kid is in 40 years going to read the textbook about um, drone delivery in the Gambia or entrepreneurship in the Gambia, we might well be in that textbook, right? Which is a pretty cool thing. If someone was to Google in, you know, 20 years' time, what were some of the first drone delivery projects around the world? someone would see like a picture of us like standing outside the distribution hub in Banjul with like a drone in the background like showing some how you use our app to launch that drone right it's a very cool feeling because that means that you have an agency right you can do something so this is I'm sort of on the adventure of deploying a drone delivery network that's the first of its kind I think it's a very cool journey and trying to grow it beyond a drone delivery network to many connected ones well yeah and it's been a uh, it's been a pleasure I'll um no, I'll speak to you in, uh, in just a few minutes again and look forward to sharing dinner with you tonight. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's been yeah. great to have you on. It's been a, an excellent conversation, a longer one than last time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. Pleasure and yeah, see you.